Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of I Connect with Baxter Canada podcast. My name is Michelle DeGloria. I am a registered nurse and a medical science liaison supporting the medication delivery team at Baxter Canada. I will be your host for this episode. As always, our goal is to bring you interesting and relevant topics that influence your day-to-day practice as a clinician. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Josh Gleicher from Sinai Health in Toronto, Ontario. Thank you for joining me today. I am joined by Dr. Josh Gleicher from Mount Sinai, and I want to thank you, Josh, for joining us. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your current role and your experience. Thank you, Michelle. Um, So I'm an anesthesiologist uh, that specializes in regional anesthesia, which is mostly nerve blocks and uh, interventional techniques to help with acute pain. I work at Sinai Health, which is a tertiary care center in downtown Toronto. And at our center, we specialize in uh, joint reconstruction surgery uh, and a lot of limb sarcoma and cancer resection. So we do perform a fair number of uh, nerve blocks at our center. Uh, Interestingly, our program is actually young. We only started our regional anesthesia program in 2017, but we've grown quite rapidly. And nowadays we perform over 4,000 blocks a year. And a lot of those are continuous nerve block catheters. Um, So can you tell me a little bit more about what is uh, continuous peripheral nerve blocks and um, why would you consider adding this program? Um, Like you said, you've only been doing it for uh, not a significant number of years, Um, but why, why was the decision made to do this? So a continuous nerve block catheter or any nerve block for that matter, it's, uh, Position uh, placing local anesthetic around a specific nerve or near a nerve block plexus. Continuous catheters are used when you want to extend the duration of the block beyond what is typically about 12 to 18 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, the longest single injection blocks last no more than 24 hours. So if you're desirous to extend that, you do need usually uh, a continuous catheter. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefit of these blocks is they, they often provide optimal analgesia for many anatomical sites, whether it's through a labor epidural for a, a woman who is in labor, mm-hmm. a thoracic epidural for somebody having major abdominal surgery, or in case of Allah, what we do is for a specific nerve that we anesthetize for uh, a limb where a patient had some kind of limb surgery, whether it's, you know, uh, cancer resection of the upper extremity or knee reconstruction for joint replacement surgery. The great part about it, beyond the fact that it provides really good optimal analgesia in many cases, it has an opioid sparing effect, as we say. So it reduces the overall amount of opioid uh, patient may need to consume in the post-operative period. In many cases, it actually is completely, you know, relates to opioid-free analgesia. Not at all, but depending on the, you know, type of block in the surgery. Uh, and as we all know, opioids have both short-term and long-term, you know, negative consequences, such as, you know, side effects of constipation, nausea, delirium, sedation in the short-term. and long-term, they can lead to dependence and even addiction. Um, and we also know 
know that a big contributory component for the opioid epidemic has been the perioperative use of opioids that in many cases led to patients eventually becoming dependent on them. So anything we can do to help prevent that and enhance the patient experience for me is kind of a double win. Mm -hmm. And this is why we employ these kind of interventions. Um, And if you could tell me just a little bit more about the program at your organization, uh, specifically what surgical procedures are performed and if you have any inclusion or inclusion criteria when you're selecting those patients. So our programs, it's really divided between our joint reconstruction and our oncology. So for joint reconstruction, we do primary hip and knee arthroplasty, and we are also a big revision center uh, for knee and hip. So revisions are a little bit of a different entity because the patients have had surgery in the past. A lot of times, they're already, you know, have some hyperalgesia. They come on opioids. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do multi-stage revisions. So if the patient comes, they may take out the hardware first and not put new hardware because they're waiting for the infection to clear. And the patients gradually become more and more dependent on opioids or require them. So this is where we try and prevent, you know, that frequent use of opioids. Or if they're already on heavy doses, we use a modality that the opioid uh, tolerance would not be a factor, such as a nerve block. Um, for our oncology, it's a, it's in some ways similar, some ways different. It's uh, different in the sense that it's different anatomical sites. We'll do a lot of upper extremity, or we do, you know, again, major truncal uh, cancers, but a lot of lower limb. Um, but at the same time, the patients are similar because a lot of times these cancer patients, they've had a lot of pain, they're greatly suffering, um, and they, they do become on high doses of opioids, whether, whether it's Suboxone or Methadone or... Uh, Fentanyl patch mm-hmm. and local using regional anesthesia is really the best way to control the pain. That's what the guidelines for chronic pain say. That's what most you know pain physicians would agree with. Not always is it feasible, but whenever we can, we try and use a regional anesthesia technique. Sometimes if the surgical site is so big, we'll have even the surgeons place it because it's something beyond what we can do okay. with ultrasound. So if it's something like a four-quarter amputation, uh, we will still use local anesthetic, but it won't be me putting the nerve block. It will be right. the surgeon who's staring right at the brachial plexus. But at the same time, for the smaller procedures, we have successfully used the nerve blocks also to enhance the patient experience and reduce the length of stay. So, for example, in 2019, we started doing inductor canal blocks for knee arthroplasty, and we decreased the length of stay from about three days to two days, which translated into you know big economic savings for the center, and it was you know well celebrated, and our leadership were happy. But we were asking, how can we do better? Because a lot of the patients were still having rebound pain after 24 hours. So even though we were getting some of them home sooner, we were still experiencing, you know, some of the rebound pain. And I remember one very specific case where a patient did great, was sent home on post-operative day one in the morning, and I get a panicked call in the evening because when she finally had some of the rebound pain, she took one dose of opioids and she became delirious. So for some oh. patients, it's not you don't need a lot. Um, so this is where for a patient like this, I really think extending the regional anesthesia technique, the duration of it, is really impactful. Right, definitely. Yeah. And I think you made a good point. You only sort of need those couple of experiences where things don't necessarily go as anticipated to make you think, hmm, can we do this better and can we make a difference, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to patient safety and and managing their postoperative pain. And I really appreciate the fact that you also talked about the fact that there are lots of patients who have already had surgical procedures. So there's already somewhat of an apprehension of how they're they, they remember what the pain was like the first time, and there's that 
level of concern that it's going to be just as bad or potentially worse this time and probably some apprehension on trying something new. Mm -hmm. Have you found that um, in your experience that those that have previous surgical experience with this new sort of multimodal pain management strategy have a better experience or are they surprised by the effectiveness? Yeah, very much so. It's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, the interesting part when we do, for example, knee surgery, a lot of the patients have had the previous knee done with a different analgesia regimen. So, you know, more recently in in 2021, when we started using continuous inductor canal nerve blocks, I would, you know, have, you know, every, every so often a patient tell me, you know, when I had my other knee, it was very different. I had a tremendous amount of pain. I was in bed for three days. I couldn't go back to work for like two weeks. And then, like, most recently, I had one guy tell me, I had surgery on the Wednesday. By Monday, I was already at work physically. So it's, you know, and he was like, this is so different. And he's like, who can they call to tell that this is, like, amazing, right? It it almost (laughs) sounded like a commercial. I'm like, you know, you can just tell the hospital so they can continue supporting this program. Uh, But it is nice to hear. And it's it's kind of funny because the knees actually allow us to see that, right? Um, and then we also have a patient that, you know, has had one of our first patients when we did the nerve block catheters that more recently came back for the second. He said, I want the exact same thing I had last time because I did not use any opioids. It was great. And, you know, uh, it, it was really nice to see that. So um, it's good to have feedback. And these are things that are hard to capture in clinical trials when you have a patient who's had the same surgery twice but on a different limb. Yeah. Now, it can be that the surgery is different. One limb was worse than the other. But for the most part, it's a fairly standardized procedure. So the patients, you know, are, you know, I really try and listen to them. And I tell me, you know, this is a big difference maker. I see, you know, there's something here and we really try and, you know, optimize that as best as possible. And so the way this started is initially we were doing nerve block infusions just for the outpatient, for the ones going home on the day of surgery to try and really maximize their chance of success. But then when we were getting this feedback, I was like, wait a minute. So we're the ones that are going home on post-operative day one, we're denying this. (laughs) Why? Like, why exactly? So so then we're like, okay, so now we got to figure out we just need a little bit of logistical setup to make sure they can get, go right away after they pass their physiotherapy on post-operative day one. Yes. But otherwise, you know, now we have, we send both patient groups uh, home with a nerve block catheter. Amazing. I'm always in awe when I hear this because I can remember without trying to date myself um, when our hospital celebrated the fact that we had created a five-day uh, total knee pathway. And that was patients staying in hospital four or five days before they would even be considered eligible to go home. And that was meeting very specific criteria and, and milestones on each day. And, and there were lots of patients who stayed beyond five days. Like we felt like we had been incredibly successful if we got them home on day five. Yeah, no, if you go back, if you look at literature, I found a study from 1998 where they're bragging that they had eight day length of stay. <laughs> Right, because that's what it used to be. You just be bedridden. This is where we transition from the sick patient model. You know, when you're bedridden and you just don't mobilize and you get DVTs and exactly. you know all the complications to the healthy patient model, where you know a lot of it is a mental component. Component when you encourage them and say you can do this, you know, but we have to enable the patient by providing the best analgesia possible. Otherwise. You know, you, you can't do the physiotherapy exercises. You won't have that confidence. And, you know, I do believe there's also a small placebo effect where the patient sees we're doing all this intervention. They're like, okay, so I can see the team is really going above and beyond to make sure I'm going to have the best energies possible. Yeah. Um, and then we actually make sure it actually works too. And then right. it, it has their, you know, very nice, uh, you know, sensory block so the patient can actually have good pain relief. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, amazing. And I always love hearing these stories because it gives me hope to know that the day that I need a, a joint replaced, which I'm not going to say when, be, I'm probably going to say more like if, or, or yeah. sorry, not if, I'm going to say when I need my joint replaced, that I'll be in good hands because, um, and, and to hear that the success is being translated and, and shared throughout multiple organizations is amazing. Um, what would you say the impact or the benefit has been on implementing elastomerics, um, not only for their patient, like I think from a patient perspective and then from an organization perspective? I know you mentioned decreasing opioid use, decreasing length of stay. Any others, um, changes in mobility or, or joint flexion or anything like that that you're seeing? Well, for sure. First of all, like the length of stay is actually, you know, it's easy to, like, I don't want to simplify it because it's actually a big deal, Mm -hmm. right? Because you got to remember during the peaks of the opioid pandemic, we were really strapped for inpatient resources. And in 2021, we were like, how can we continue providing joint reconstruction for patients who are sitting at home in pain without actually pulling away from the inpatient resources. So it's, it's actually a huge deal that we're able to do this. And in part, that's how I got, you know, great support from my institution. I got to give them a lot of credit for seeing the value here. Um, so the length of stay, if I say, hey, you know, Michelle, I decrease the length of stay by half a day per patient. Well, if you're doing 500 of these a year, that adds up very quickly, right? So um, in, the, the, in addition to that, the length of stay cost and also the patient satisfaction. So patients are always happy to be at home if you can actually provide them, you know, good analgesia and setting them up for success. We all want to sleep in our own bed and yes. be near our families and supports. It's how we can actually enable that for the patient. Um the elastomeric pumps actually, you know, at, so it's funny that you say that because at first the inpatients, remember I said that we were mm-hmm. keeping them in, so we would connect the catheter once we started in them to an electronic pump, and then they would pass physio, and then we would try and get the elastomeric pump uh, switched from the cat pump. And it was actually kind of convoluted and made a lot of work for acute pain service. Right. So now we connect them all the catheters where you're going home from recovery room or you're going to the ward. Everybody gets the elastomeric pump connected in the recovery room. And then it's just like the same path. It's the same, you know, solution for who, no matter where you go. Right. And then as soon as they've already gotten the education, they have the information sheet, they know how to pull out the catheter because we provide the teaching in the recovery room. And then when the physiotherapy assesses them the morning after, the pain service sees them again, but you don't need to start transitioning pumps and making changes. Um, so it actually is turned into a very, you know, seamless uh, process. Yeah, um, it sounds like you've been able to really simplify the process and offer some standardization as well. Exactly. And, you know, to this day, knock on wood, I haven't had any patients have any issues taking out the catheter at home. At first, I was very worried about that, actually. Yes. Um, on occasion, one will accidentally come out if, you know, if, like I had a patient, it got caught on the chair as I was walking and it came out. I'm like, okay, that's too bad. Um, so I try, we try and reinforce it as much as we can. Um, but for the most part, the, you, know, the, you know, that seems to really work at home. And, the, you know, one of the things I actually also notice patients say the sleep quality is improved. And it's, it's really interesting, you know, because I remember patients would usually say the second night, once all the nerve blocks have worn off, is really quite awful. And a lot of times they tell me, you know, I had a great sleep, which is, you know, you need that and able to, you know, have a good recovery. So um, I think initially from an institutional, because you mentioned that, 
you know, there is a growing some growing pains, right? So everybody's like, it's a little bit extra work for some care providers, like the pain service, maybe the recovery n- nurses right. and geologists placing the catheter. So it's very important to actually, you know, learn as you go along, get feedback from your stakeholders and say, okay, so if this is now making your life harder, how can we actually make it easier? Um, you know, can we provide, you know, some support in terms of logistics, in terms of equipment, in terms of personnel? Because as I said, the hospital does benefit significantly from this. So if you can convince your institution that there is, you know, long-term benefits, if we can have a short-term investment, it it is worth the while. I know you talked about uh, the benefits for the patient, the organization. What about the clinicians? Have they, has anyone said, you know, um, to your point, looking at workflows, that this has negatively impacted their workflow or their workload? Um, or are they finding this to be potentially more efficient? Maybe they're le- they're administering medications less often or, you know, just curious. So, so it's a great question because no doubt a catheter takes longer to place in a single injection block. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter how good you are, it's, I would say at least minimum 15 minutes, probably closer to 25 minutes right. to place, you know, a neuroblock catheter. Mm-hmm. And we have all a finite amount of time. Um but, you know, I think the key with care providers is, first of all, showing them this is worthwhile because this works. And we're all in this profession because we like to help patients. All my colleagues, anesthesiologists and pain specialists, we, we obviously care very much about making patients comfortable. Mm-hmm. So once you actually show that as your starting point, then the next question is, okay, so how can we actually you know, make this as feasible as possible, you know, and different institutions will have different solutions. Some centers where I did my fellowship at another center, all the nerve block catheters gets placed uh, before surgery. Uh, For us, we found we don't want to delay surgery and we also don't want nerve block catheters, for example, for reductor canal blocks to be displaced by the tourniquet. So a lot of catheters we placed in the PACU in recovery room after surgery. There's less a little bit of a time crunch. Um, There's more time for me to provide teaching. So, you know, this afternoon I was teaching a trainee how to do an induction canal catheter. We took a little bit extra time, but it worked out very nicely. The patient was nice and comfortable and relaxed. Um, They've already had their surgery um, and they're nice and awake and, you know, very supportive of that. So, that's a logistical setup that we found. It does take resources. So we have a block room team. We have a block room fellow that helps do this. But I know in some community hospitals, they're able to do this post-op uh, in Toronto. And whereas I know some other centers in Ontario where they, they're done pre-op right. and they don't use turnkey or they have other ways to offset it. They place the catheter above the turnkey. So it really depends. You know, different places may have different solutions. And you got to figure out what are your barriers and what is the best you know, way for you to overcome them. Yeah, and I think you you brought up a good point. Like it's understanding what not it's not one size fits all. You're yeah. really having to evaluate how your organization is currently doing things, and probably I would imagine identifying as well when you really start to look at a procedure, are there any other opportunities for improvement or efficiencies that we can find, and and figuring out what will work, um, not and bringing I would think. This, all of the stakeholders together also being very important because obviously you're working in partnership with a surgical team, the clinici- clinicians, the nurses, the assistants, all of those people and bringing their voice and, and ensuring that they're, they have something to say, that they're, they have a, their input is valued. Well, it's crucial not to wait operating room time. So yes. a minute of our time is from 20, ranges from 20 minutes to 120 minutes. So, 
that adds up very quickly. Um, And of course, you need complete buy-in from the surgical team. And if you're actually delaying cases, even leading to cancellation, they're not going to be there to support you, right? And I I think that's very fair of them because they they need to be able to continue performing these surgeries. If you're canceling cases, that's a problem. Um, So you really got to factor that in and take that you know, as a, you know, key factor when you're saying, how can I not delay the, you know, what is already a very complex process of the OR flow while still being able to place, you know, continuous neurobot catheters. Uh, it took us a while to get, you know, our system going, but now, now it runs very well. But I won't lie, it wasn't, you know, from in, in, in one day or even one week where we got it, you know, uh, to a nice smooth yeah. uh, process. And it took a lot of thinking, a lot of feedback from frontline workers, which we always welcome and very hard work from our anesthesia team. Um, I'm wondering, as we close out our conversation today, if you would be able to share your top three recommendations for other healthcare organizations who are interested in implementing CPMB as part of their pain management plan for post-surgical patients. So I think we've we've kind of touched on a few of them. So I guess the first one is engaging stakeholders and getting their support. And that means not just surgeons, it's also hospital leadership, pharmacy, uh, you got to find out what's the best, you know, uh, way for you to obtain the solutions that you're going to be running through your nerve block catheter and different centers may have different needs. Um, speak to your allied health. I talk to our physiotherapists all the time. Mm-hmm. I get feedback for them. I provide education because now they need to know about these nerve block catheters, right. which ones can cause motor block. So all these stakeholders need to be involved, the recovery room nurses, the block room nurses, um, and it really is a team effort. I guess my second recommendation is, you still have to remember that nerve block catheters require technical expertise. Mm-hmm. They are more involved than single injection nerve blocks. It doesn't mean that you need to be a regional anesthesia fellowship trained, you know, expert. My philosophy and, you know, my colleague, Dr. Peacock, who's also a regional anesthetist here, so we came fellowship trained. Our philosophy was to train our team, right. not to be the two people who run around doing all the blocks. So we have trained other colleagues to perform these nerve blocks, and we are supporting them. And we continue to, you know, build our program based on this, you know, principle. Uh, but having said that, you do need to practice and you do need support for somebody more experienced if it's not something you're doing frequently right now. Um, And my last point is really patient-centric. It's patients need education and follow-up. You can't just be placing these catheters without giving the patients some background on why you're doing this, getting informed consent, and then telling them, giving some education about how to manage it, what to look out for in terms of signs and symptoms of things like, for example, local anesthetic toxicity, or what happens last night, I had somebody call because the catheter was leaking a little bit. It wasn't a problem because he still had a good block. He was pain-free. He hasn't used opioids. But because we gave them him uh, info sheet, he called in this morning and told them, don't worry about it. It actually happens in about you know 20 to 25% of patients, a little bit of leakage, and it's totally fine, and he was super happy. Um, and the, the combination of the educational follow-up is crucial for the patient satisfaction. And also to minimize your work, actually, because, you know, if all of a sudden a patient's coming to the emergency department in panic with a catheter they think is leaking, that creates more work for the system and for the anesthesia team as well. No, those are all very good points. I want to say thank you, Josh, for joining me today. I've learned a lot, and I know that our audience will be just as appreciative of you sharing all of your um, learnings with us. Um, And just thanks again. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to share our experience at Sinai Health. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To listen to more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe to ensure you always receive notification. 
Please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. We look forward to having you back with us next time. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.